0: Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us in our series, First Peter, hope in the midst of suffering. In this series, we will discover how to experience hope within suffering through learning how to embrace love, submission and identity in the midst of challenges as we follow the example of Christ. We pray that this message is a blessing.
1: Tonight we have two readings. The first one is from Exodus nineteen three to six. And it says, Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then all of the nations you will be, then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. I love the reference there to eagle's wings and what Rachel was just sharing as well. And then the second reading comes from 1 Peter 2, um, verses four to nine. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Awesome, how good. What a passage of scripture, hey? My privilege to spend the next two hours unpacking it. Um, If we've not had the joy of meeting, my name's Alex and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. Welcome to New Life Brisbane. Our hope is to see more people more like Jesus and gathering is part of that. What you do right now in this moment, as we come into the weight of Scripture and sing worship songs to Jesus across one another, that's part of more people more like Jesus. So thanks for bringing your whole selves to that. Two quick things before I jump into the text. Um, And number one is I heard this afternoon that we had some young people playing board games downstairs. Can I hear from our young people where we at? Hey. So good, every every two months, I think we're playing board games in the crypt. So we apologise that it's musty and smelly down there, but um, you make it fun nonetheless. How good to be an intergenerational church. We've got heaps of generations across our site this Sunday. And the second thing is just a heads up, on the 10th of September, we're gonna have Lead Minister Michael Hands with us to preach. And after the service, we're gonna do an open Q&A. The passage for that week is 1 Peter 3.15, which says something like, always be prepared. So can give an answer for the reason, for the hope that you have and do this with gentleness and respect. And so we thought what better opportunity to apply God's word than create a space where we can do a Q&A in the heart of this city, not just for Christians to model what it might look like to answer questions people have about Christianity, but actually to invite our friends that might have questions themselves. And just wanna put it on your radar, 10th of September, 6pm, straight after the service, we'll do an open Q&A, no question off limits, bring your friends that might have questions about Jesus. It's gonna be a really great time. Let me pray and then we'll jump into the scriptures together. Father, thank you that Jesus is the word. I'm not the word. The words we share over one another is not the word. They merely participate in what you've spoken, are speaking and will speak. So we just ask God, give us ears to hear. Father, we don't wanna just learn more facts about you. What a waste of time. We wanna meet with you. We want you to transform us. And so Father, we give you our minds and ask that you would speak to them. We give you our hearts and pray that you prepare the soil of them to receive your word. And Father, we give you our bodies and our hands and ask if you wanna do more than just speak, but actually transform, do the miraculous and move in our midst, we give you them as well. You've got a word for each of us this evening. And we just love that, Lord. So come in Jesus' name, amen, amen. I, um, I learned a fun fact this week. Actually, I learned it a few weeks ago, but I don't even know if it's true, but I just thought I'd share it in our midst and see what we did with it. Apparently, this building is the most photographed building in all of Brisbane, did you know that? Might not be true. Feels true though, doesn't it? People walk past and they're like, what's, what's with the gingerbread house? Like, and it's so exposed, beautiful. I was upstairs doing some last minute sermon prep, doesn't always happen, but I was on level one of our offices looking across and I just saw this mum with her two boys walk past and they were being naturally rebellious and she turned back, took a snap, moved on her way and I was like, oh, I wonder if I searched, you know, hashtag Albert Street if I'd find that photo. Most photographed building in all of Brisbane. And I think it's because it's really beautiful. It's quite fascinating. It causes people to question. And it raises for me a bigger question. What do people think of when they look at this church? And maybe even deeper than that, what do people think of when they think of the church? Um, I'm looking at this passage this evening and on one level, it's about the identity of individuals who are in Jesus's church. But on a bigger level, it's actually about the identity of the church itself. And I don't know about you, but I think the church has got a bit of a PR problem. All of us have had very different experiences of what the church is and what it should be. And it's disappointed us along the way. I remember my first experience at church. It's a Presbyterian church in Woody Point where I grew up. And uh, I only remembered this this week actually, because I'd completely forgotten that this was my experience, but there's a church in Woody Point, a Presbyterian church on the Redcliffe Peninsula, just 45 minutes north of here. And I'd go to like Friday afternoon, I don't know, what it was, was it called youth group? I didn't even know if they called it that. And the only thing I remember is that they had unlimited hash browns. And I just went to town on those hash browns. But when I was 15, I was invited to another church And I met these people that were so real, so down to earth, people on platform weren't wearing shoes. And I was like, man, these guys just don't take themselves seriously, but I think it's because they've discovered another person they do take seriously, his name's Jesus. But you match that story and map it on to say another story that's been told in the media, echoing out through like the last, last two decades. And the church has got a bit of a PR problem. In 2001 on September 11, you know the story, right? Some planes were hijacked and it was flown into the twin, twin Towers and they burnt down, killing hundreds of lives. And in the aftermath, there was a whole host of pundits, media reporters, journalists, but a particular guy named Christopher Hitchin wrote a book. You'll see it on the screen behind me. And the book is called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And he had this to say, thinking about religion in whole because of which, the church's reputation gets dragged along with it. But here's what he said, reflecting on that day, violent, irrational, intolerant, allied to racism and tribalism and bigotry, invested in ignorance and hostile to free inquiry, contemptuous of women and coercive toward children, organised religion ought to have a great deal on its conscience. Bit of a low point in the history of religion, more particularly the church. But then a few years later, a guy named Tim Keller, having planted a church in the heart of Manhattan across Central Park, started seeing myriads of people meeting Jesus, not because he was promising a life that actually wasn't biblically true, but actually preaching the faithfulness of the Scriptures in their totality and hundreds, actually thousands of people came to faith, and actually the weekend after September 11, rather than people rejecting the institutional church and walking away from faith, they saw 5,000 people walk through the doors of their church. Bit of a high moment in the history of the church. Fast forward again, and in 2012, under the Gillard government here in Australia, a bit closer to home, They commissioned the Royal Commission uh, investigating institutional response to child sexual abuse. Bit of a trigger here. And what came out in that report as it was published five years later in 2017 is shame for the church. And people responded and were like, goodness me, the institutional church has a lot to be conscious of, a lot to be sorry for. Church is a bit of a PR problem. But then even closer to home, a guy named Greg Sheridan, himself a journalist, not Christopher Hitchin, the British guy commenting on America, But Greg Sheridan, a guy who was a journalist for The Australian, wrote a book called God Is Good For You, thinking about Christianity in response to troubled times. And he said, and you'll see it behind me, that Christianity is actually, if you look at it on score, a social good, a moral good, a psychological good, a personal good, and a truthful good. What do we think of the church? When people walk past and take a photo of this building and think about the kinds of people that could be inside, who might we be to them? Identity. And this passage that we've looked at, we've read the whole host of, I just wanna zoom in on one verse and think about if we were to embody this as the people of God, what could it look like for our city? What could it look like for our friends? What could it look like for our neighbors? And how do we change the tide on the PR problem that God has, not just in the public, but actually in private? So we might see God do something in our time for his glory and our joy along the way. And so verse nine, literally I could spend three hours on each particular word here. We're gonna zoom in on three titles that Jesus, that Peter uses to talk about the church. And we're gonna learn a few things along the way. And the first thing is this, you are a chosen people you are a chosen people. Now, this language of chosen actually gets somewhat of a debate in the history of the church. And when it comes to talking about being chosen by God, there's sort of two camps, and I won't zoom in on this too much because we don't have 2000 years, right? It's literally been 2000 years people have been talking about this question. But here's the question, what does it mean to be elect? And the two camps that have divided over this question is simply this, that to be elect means to be an individual chosen by God before time, to experience eternal life and salvation when time is over. Elect, you are chosen as an individual. On the other end of the spectrum is the idea that God chooses a community of people, the likes of which is up for debate as to whether you're part of them. First hand of the spectrum, Calvinism. Other end of the spectrum, Arminianism. What does biblical election mean? What does it look like? We'll roll through really quickly because the Bible actually does have a definition. But our church as a church doesn't require everyone in, in our midst to sort of make a, make a decision on this question because we think it's partially significant, but actually we don't align on say Calvinism or Arminianism. We just think it's actually really hotly debated and um, we all get to work out what it looks like in our midst. But I do have a view and I'll share my view and hopefully we'll walk through the scriptures in a way that allow us to take something from it regardless of where we sit on either end of the spectrum. Does that sound okay? So think of this as like a little hiatus from the preach. We'll teach for a second, we'll come back. But here's the biblical picture, Exodus 19, which um, Maddie read for us helpfully really um, just before. Uh, If you've got your Bibles there, as Dylan asked us to have last week, just open them up with me and let me read from Exodus 19. And I want you to notice something. Um, Exodus 19 verses six and onwards, sorry, four and onwards. Um, Actually, I'll read from verse three. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be, and then he goes on to list very similar terms to what Peter would write in his letter. Here's the picture. The people of God, Israel, have been rescued from Pharaoh Moses stands before the people as the mouthpiece of God and gives them a promise. And that promise is about what he is electing them to do and to be before a community of people we call the rest of the world. And here's the picture. Here's the picture, nine times out of 10, Obviously, there's a few texts that are a bit tricky. Here's the picture, and that's just me being honest, right? Here's the picture, nine times out of 10, when the Bible talks about election, it's usually, not, it's not just about an individual, it's about a community. It's not really just about eternity, it's about a particular task. And it's not really about salvation in the individual sense, it's often about mission and what God wants to do through a people in this moment. In other words, election is about vocation. It's about calling in the world. And the calling of the people of God, when the word election is used in the Bible, pictures not so much God standing there before time going, who will I choose? But more God responding to the fall in Genesis 3 saying, who will be my witnesses? Do you see that? He's looking for a people through whom he can demonstrate who he is, so that more than those He chose in the first place might come into the family of God themselves. In other words, I'll give you some preaching words for it. God chooses to bless so that those He chooses to bless might themselves be a blessing. God elects some so that through those people, He might see the whole world come to know Him, which is why Paul writes in 1 Timothy, he wants that none would perish. And it's not like God's sitting there before time going, who's in, who's out, I'm gonna choose, they've got no say in the matter. He's saying, who will be my hands and feet so that I might see more people come into my family? That's the biblical picture of election. Now you say, well, what do we do about all the passages that seem to suggest it's about an individual God chooses before time? And I'd say, that's what small groups for. You know what I'm saying? There's always one person in a small group that like, loves to chat that one over and it's fine. Like we, did, we even talk about this at my small group. There was a girl in our small group the other week who was like, what do you have on the doctrine of election? And I was like, here's two books. And she's just like, that's not really what I was after. And I was like, okay, that's fair enough. But this is God's vision in the world. He wants, to, he wants to elect a people through whom he can elect the world. It doesn't mean everyone's in, but it does mean that we're chosen. And here's what that doesn't mean therefore. One of the ways that Americans talk about um, meat is they talk about grading it. So there's like grade A meat, there's grade B meat. And one of the ways to talk about the best kind of meat, this is, I promise this is relevant, right? The youth are like, does he always talk like this? Yes, he does. Um, but the best meat's called the choice meat. So if you live in upper Manhattan and you go down to your local bookshire, organic, fair trade, a cow's fair trade, I don't know, but right, you buy some steak. And the way you know you, the steak that you wanna buy is you look for the choice stuff. So is Peter saying that those who are in the family of God are the best, the choicest? Or is that old video from like our Kiwi brothers and sisters went like choice as bro, you know? Is that what he's saying? The church is choice as. No. No, they're not. It's gonna get you to look around. (laughs) We're a pretty random bunch of people. I stuff up all the time. I don't feel choice. But here's the objection that comes. Oh, Alex, I can't be part of the people of God and I can't definitely be used by God because I'm not good enough. I'm not choice enough. I'm not grade A enough. I don't qualify myself morally, ethically, personally, spiritually. I'm just not. But here's what this passage doesn't allow us to do. Say that. We're not choice. We're just chosen. And that changes how we get in and it changes how we get on. Think about it like this. Nothing in your hand did you bring to be welcomed into the family of God. You actually brought open-handedness. There was no moral resume you could bring before God. There's no ethical purity you could sort of put as your resume before him, nothing. It was all based on the grace of God and us being part of the elect people, not because we're choice, but actually he's chosen a particular body that we by faith in Jesus have said yes to. And so what does this mean? Well, it means two things all at the same time. One, that it's very humbling to be a Christian and also very exalting all at the same time. See, I meet a number of people who think, man, Christians are arrogant. They're the people in the media that talk about having access to the truth and you're all wrong, but we're right. And there's an arrogance that can get portrayed when we talk about what it means to be a Christian, but here's what's not allowed, just that. We can't be arrogant. Sure, we have access to the truth, but it's not because we discovered it by our own effort. God revealed Himself to us. Sure, we know the right way to live as we apprentice under Jesus, but it's not because we figured it out with our own mental ingenuity. It's because God in Jesus through the Scriptures revealed it to us by the Spirit and powered us for it. We actually can't boast, which is why 1 Corinthians 1, Paul would say it like this. Let me jump there. I'm already there, goodness me, how good. Brothers and sisters, Paul would say. Now just before I finish the sentence, just like think about your own life. Like just think about who you were. Now you might say, look, I didn't have a pretty hectic testimony before I met Jesus. I was grew up in a Christian family. That's fine, that's part of this. Like, just think about who you were before you met Jesus, like really met him. Here's what Paul would say. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. And I'd like to say, oh, I think I'm pretty all right, God. And Jesus is like, not compared to me. Awesome, all right. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Here's the takeaway, so that no one may boast before Him. Arrogance, none. We're right, yeah, but not in that kind of way. Can't boast, no arrogance. But at the same time, it's wonderfully exalting, isn't it? I get to play a part. Dylan helpfully reminded us last week that being a Christian doesn't simply mean being saved from something. Sin, wrath, hell, evil, death, decay. That's good in and of itself. That will wake me up, that will get me out of bed, that's awesome. But here's the wonder of Christianity, which Paul, Peter reminds us at the end of this particular verse. We were saved to something. And the two for which we were saved is to play a part. God's doing something in the world. You get to join in. Don't disqualify yourself. Don't get arrogant because you're part of it. Just participate with whatever you can in your workplace, in this church, in your families. We get to play a part. Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and philosopher would say it like this, you'll see it on the screen. Jesus Christ is a God to whom you can draw near without pride and bow down low without despair. I know no one like Jesus, why? He chose us. He chose us, this body, Jesus's body, humbling and exalting. One, you are a Chosen people. Number two, you're a royal priesthood. The background to this text is Exodus 40 verses 12 to 15. Jump there with me if you can. I'm gonna give you time because it pretends that I don't need it. And here we go, Exodus 40, chapter 12 to 15. I'm gonna read a bit of it, and here's what I want you to do. When Peter takes the language of royal priesthood, chosen nation, which sort of echoes Exodus 19, I want you to picture what's happening at that time in the Israelite people. Here's genuinely what's happening. Um, the Israelite people, they've been set apart, one from the throes of Pharaoh, they've crossed the Red Sea, and now they're free from the evil of Pharaoh and free to worship. God, but there's a problem. Where do we worship and who are the people that will establish the worship centre for us? Here's the answer. Exodus 40, verses 12. Actually, I might read a bit more. 12 to 15. Says these words. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments, anoint him and consecrate him so that he may serve me as priest. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics. Anoint them just as you anointed their father, so they may serve me as priests. Their anointing will be to a priesthood that will continue throughout their generations. Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. Verse 18, when Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars, and set up the posts. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent as the Lord commanded him. What's going on here? You've got the establishing of the tabernacle, which was meant to be the home in which God's presence rested. And the way that God guarantees for himself a tabernacle amongst the people, a broken, a sinful, a destitute people, is he gives them a priesthood. And the priesthood served to do all the necessary requirements, ritual, religious rites, practices, symbols, to ensure that the presence of God would be hosted because the place in which they gather was holy. That's what the priesthood was for. But here's the clincher. The priesthood was reserved for a particular people a particular family, a particular lineage. And so you couldn't be part of the priesthood if you weren't from the Levite family, which descended from Aaron. You couldn't be part of the priesthood and the Holy of Holies if you weren't part of the family. And here's what happened when the Bible and the instruction of God instituted the priesthood in the Old Testament. You'll see it on the screen behind me. It did three things. It localised God's presence, it made it exclusive and it limited it. And this is the problem with priesthoods. Whenever you have a human priesthood that stands in the gap between humanity and God, you automatically on one level create a conduit through which people can meet with God, that's great. But in creating a conduit, you put all these barriers around it and actually you create an obstacle. And so my access to God, it's localised in the Old Testament. Only if I go to a particular place will I be able to experience it and that's the temple or the tabernacle. It's exclusive. I myself can't enter into the holy of holies. I can't come face to face with the divine. People do that on my behalf. And more than that, it's temporal, it's limited. It narrows the scope with which I can actually meet with God. Now this is actually a bigger problem in the Old Testament because it's not just a problem that God experienced with the Israelites and humanity experienced because of this sort of model. It's actually something that's been unfolding since the day dawn of time. See, in creation, in Genesis 2, actually one of the images through which to understand the entire biblical storyline is that God wants to institute priests in creation. When he made Adam and Eve in Genesis two, he gives them the cultural mandate, which basically says something along these lines, take the beauty of of the creation you're experiencing here in Eden and push it out across the known world. Take the shalom, the goodness, the beauty, my presence, and as priests and kings steward it, be sub rulers in my kingdom as we push out this beautiful creation across the earth. It's called the image of God and the cultural mandate. It's the image that God has for humanity. But what did Adam and Eve do? they define right and wrong for themselves and they were pushed out of the garden, no longer able to be priests. And so what does God do? Well, God doesn't leave humanity to its own devices. God chases after them. And in the story of Israel, the story of the monarchy and the kingdom of Israel, the story of Jerusalem and the establishment of the temple, all of it is God trying to find priests for Himself so He could steward His presence across the earth. That's literally one of the ways to understand the storyline of the Bible. God wants priests. He wants His priests back in the world but you get to the end of the Old Testament, sort of like this cliffhanger of a story and the, and the prophets are in the temple in Jerusalem. that's now been exiled and knocked down and, and they denounce the priests because the priests love sacrifice, but not justice and mercy. And they mistook doing the religious stuff for actually the real stuff God was interested in. And so the storyline of the Old Testament is actually the storyline of God showing us that human priests are insufficient. Why? Localises him, exclusivizes access and it limits the scope that we can actually enjoy him through. Which is why one of the ways to understand what Jesus did, the writer of Hebrews would say is that Jesus is the great high priest. And when the writer of the Hebrews does this in the New Testament, because Jesus lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve, and I'll be finished with this biblical theology in a second, I promise. Jesus abolished the priesthood or at least he abolished all human priesthood because he now is the final priest because of which we need no other priests. We don't need any more mediums. We don't need any more people as conduits. We don't need anything else except relationship with God through Jesus. So in other words, here's what Jesus has made possible. You see another screen behind me here. It says this. God's now universally available. Doesn't mean all people would call on him or meet him, but God is universally available. God is inclusive. You don't need to be of a particular pedigree to have access to Jesus or come into the Holy of Holies and meet God. God is inclusive. And then bigger than that, He's perpetual. Doesn't matter if it's the middle of the night, first thing in the morning, if it's a holy season in the calendar of the church or pretty mundane, God is available. And here's, do I wanna zoom in here? No, I don't want to zoom in here. Just think about this though briefly. God's looking for priests in the world and the beauty of the Christian story is that in Jesus we become restored priests. And the, the, the job of a priest, just picture this in your own life for a second because this isn't religious language. This is all of life language. The job of a priest is to represent God to the people and to represent the people to God. Pause, when you think about your life as a Christian, is that what comes to mind? By grace through faith, because we've come to God through our great high priest Jesus, we have been commissioned in the spirit to represent God to people. Now I started this sermon by actually saying the church has a PR problem. And on one level, that's just the risk God took in making us the people through whom he'd represent himself to the world, right? But this is the calling, this is the vocation, this is the mission. When you think about your life, one of the writers I I love reading is a New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright and there'll be an image on the screen behind me. He says, this vision for life should make us think of ourselves as 45 degree mirrors. What does he mean? A 45 degree mirror, if it's at the right angle, will take what people are looking at horizontally and direct them vertically up to the right thing. So picture this. You are, and forgive me for this language, you are a 45 degree mirror to God. Now here's the crazy thing. That's true whether you like it or not. That's true whether you've had a good week or not. That's true whether you feel like you've been faithful with the calling of Jesus in your life or not. And so the question isn't, well, am I a 45 degree mirror? And more so, what kind of mirror am I? Am I foggy? Am I like a bit stained? Are there like finger marks on this mirror that would taint the image of Jesus? And the story of our lives is, well, yeah, all the time. Thank you very much. But do you picture your life as a 45 degree mirror to God? Now we'll take just 10 seconds of silence because I want us to just think about this in our own lives. You know, I get freed up full time And you might say, like, people would think of me as a priest, you know? I've got family members who aren't Christian. They're like, you're a priest, aren't you? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't think so. That's not language (laughs) I'm familiar with. But I I have the joy of being freed up full-time to serve as pastor in this church. And that's a wonderful thing. But I don't know what this looks like in a workplace. Like, I slung milk and made coffee going through Bible college. And so I can try and apply it the best I can with some particular handles. But we need to work this out. Like we actually need to partner together. If we're gonna see renewal in our time, not just in these four walls, but in the city out there and the suburbs from which we come because we're a regional church, we actually need to take time and say, God, think about this, God, what would it look like for me to be a 45 degree mirror to you? In my workplace, in my family, in my friendship circles. And the beauty of Jesus is that he'll answer that question. That's one of the most, that's one of the questions he loves answering. And so take time. We'll just give 10 seconds and just just think, just even ask that that question in the quiet of your own heart. God, what does this look like for me? And he'll answer that question. Awesome. I'm gonna skip my last point and um, maybe I'll find another way to deliver it to us, but that's okay. It says something like, you're a a holy nation. And there's a whole host of ways we can think about that, but just a helpful definition for that, just as we're on our way here, would be something like this. To be set apart for God. That's what holiness means. Doesn't mean being self-righteous or like the worst Aussie critique in the world, being like up yourself morally. Just means being set apart. What would that look like in our lives? I wanna zoom past that because I wanna drill down on something really deep because the question I ask is, how do I do this? Like, what a high calling. What a big vision for life. What a huge mountain. How could I possibly do it? And I learned something a while ago about how whenever whenever the Bible gives sort of like moral vision for how we should live our lives, there's two ways that you can sort of wrestle with it. One is to picture my ability to perform these moral tasks as a means by which I get God's acceptance and perhaps even achieve my identity, say, as the people of God. The other is actually to do away with all the moral imperatives and just say, it's too hard. I'm just going to lean into the fact that God's gracious and kind and accepts me regardless. And both of these are insufficient, actually. And this one's particularly dangerous This one's so dangerous because it sort of suggests that if you succeed in sort of morally performing your way to have the identity as God's chosen people, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, if you think you get there, here's what it means. It means you look down your nose at other Christians who just don't seem to be as good as you and you start holding them to account for things that actually, you know, you don't need to. Or... Let's say you don't feel successful in this particular area of life and you feel like you've failed. Here's what it means. You feel despairing. And you feel like the whole Christian community with which you gather on a Sunday are doing so well and you're sort of like locked on the outside of the door looking in, feeling forever unable. Despair or pride? All at the same time. That's just not how the New Testament talks about it, how we're meant to live our lives. Here's the vision the New Testament has for how we're to live our lives it wants to remind us of the identity that God's made true of us by grace through faith. Or in other words, get this language, it's behind me on the screen, theoretically. The Bible would say live in the present in a way that aligns with what God made true of you in the past. Live in the present in a way that aligns with what God made true of you in the past. One illustration, then the planes landed. There's that scene, and as I, as I talk, the band can come and join me. There's that scene in um, The Lion King and Simba standing by a weighted pool in a lake. And he's wondering, do I have the power to return home and step into the royal identity that my father would have me step into? and become king. Is it Pride Rock? Is that what it's called? Yeah, great. Disney fans, eat your heart out. (laughs) And as he sits there vulnerably with a big vision for what his life should be because the community says, here's the identity you should lean into. You should be king. You should come back and reign. You should do what your father did. He sits there and goes, I don't know if I've got the power within me and I don't know if I've got the practices outside of me that can help me become what I need to be. And then Rafiki comes along, the crazy little baboon. and he says, stare into the water. So he stares into the water and he says, I see nothing but myself, what a disappointment. And he says, no, look again. And there before him is his father, Mufasa. Is it Mufasa? Yeah, it's not Scar, good. (laughs) Could have gone real south. And Simba gets a glimpse of what's not already true about him because he sees who he was because of who his father was. And Rafiki says to him in that moment, if you're gonna do this, if you're gonna go home, if you're gonna get the stuff, the power, the, the, the wherewithal to be that which you're called to be, remember who you are. And here's the point of this passage. As we think about the PR problem the church has and the struggles we as individuals in the church have every single day, it's not to try harder, it's not to do more, it's not to try and perform so we get God's acceptance, it's this. Remember who you are. Let me speak this over us. Why don't we stand? And here's what the word of God would say to you. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is true about you. 1 Peter chapter two, verse nine. I'm just gonna try and remember it. Oh, it's on the screen. How good. You are a chosen people. Maybe you wanna close your eyes as I say this actually and just posture your heart just to receive this. This won't one day be true about you. This won't, through the right effort, be true about you. This is true about you because of Jesus, your great high priest. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession. (sighs) That you may declare the praises of him who brought you out of darkness into His wonderful light. We're gonna get into worship in a moment. And just as we do, I just wanna give the call out there. um, To receive this identity is to experience a freedom like nothing else. And if you've never stepped into this identity before, stepped into relationship with God through Jesus Christ, who's available now, who's accessible right here, We just wanna give you an opportunity to do that. And to do that, we simply say a simple prayer, which is God, thank you for being available to me, me, Lord, me. Sorry for the way I've lived my life. Help me follow after you. So if that's you, I just wanna invite you, if that's you, raise your hand right where you are. We'd love to pray with you. If you wanna step into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, just raise your hand nice and high so I can see, we'd love to just lead us all in a prayer that we can participate in together. Wonderful, awesome. Well, I love being honest in these moments and just wanna let the community know, um, actually no one has put up their hand, which is fine. Um, We do this every single week and the beauty of this is that when someone does, there should be rapturous applause. So I wanna pray as we close our time and just remind us whatever God's stirring in your heart, if you need prayer, there'll be a prayer team down the front all of us can respond in unique ways. What would it look like just to take this Word, let God bury it in your heart by the Spirit and respond with your whole life right now. Let me pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word and what it said and even now what it's saying to us. Father, as a community, we wanna lean into the identity that You've got for us. We're a ragtag bunch of people, Lord, but You've got a great mission in the world. And we surrender to playing our part, not because we're able. Lord, you know we're not. But Father, you're able. And so Holy Spirit, we pray even as we worship right now that our song, our words, it would, it would actually be a sweet fragrance of an offering to you, Jesus. And that you'd do something in our midst that would go beyond words. and represent you rightly to one another in the world that we gather in. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, come receive prayer if you would like to, and um, let's worship together. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or our Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.